right, we'll turn, if you would, to Matthew 14. And uh, we are going to finish up Matthew 14 this morning with another very familiar passage. Last week, of course, we looked at uh, the very familiar text of Jesus' feeding of the 5,000. And uh, this week, probably one that is that is uh, equally as familiar and memorable is Jesus walking on the water. And that's what we will look at today. So Matthew 14, and we'll go from verse 22 down through the end of the chapter. Back in the beginning of chapter 13, you remember that we studied uh, that famous parable about the different kinds of soils. And uh, just as a little review, we had the hard soil, the, the path in which the word of the gospel was sown, but immediately it was snatched away by the birds because there was no soil at all for it to take root in. Then you had the stony soil in which the seed was sown and the it went into the ground, but it was shallow so that as soon as the sprouts came up, they were burned by the elements and they did not produce fruit. Then there was the thorny ground in which the seed was sown and it took root and it began to grow, but very quickly it was choked out by the weeds and the tares around it. Um, that was the cares of the world, as Jesus explained to it, choking out that seed and growth. And then finally, we saw the good soil, the fertile ground in which the word of the Lord was sown and it took root and produced fruit, fruit that remained. And since the time that we've finished Jesus' kingdom parables, uh, Matthew really has been recording for us some interactions that Jesus had with people around him. And in those interactions, we begin to see glimpses, maybe some examples of those different kinds of soils or the kinds of hearts that Jesus was referring to in that parable. For instance, when Jesus returned to Nazareth at the end of chapter 13, we found out that he was met by his own people, his own old neighbors, as it were, with the kind of skepticism and offense that indicated just rejection. It's a picture of the seed sown on hard ground. There wasn't even an inkling of, of root taken, just rejection, just doubt, animosity toward Jesus and his ministry from his own kindred and people. We saw another picture of rejection in the beginning of chapter 14, where Herod saw Jesus as a threat to his rule and to his fame. He thought he was John the Baptist reincarnated, which brought him great concern. And this really reminds me of that thorny ground where the cares and the temptations of life choke out the seed so that it cannot grow. For Herod, his concern with his own throne was that thorn that choked out any possibility of the seed of Jesus' ministry taking root in his heart. Last week, we saw a major interaction with people who followed Jesus to that desolate place across the Sea of Galilee. They listened to his teaching all day long. Their people were healed by him. They were filled, literally, with the loaves and the fish, and they were amazed. If we move out of Matthew for a bit to get some more of the information, the historical information, John records the crowd's response, their reaction to this miracle. And Matthew doesn't record this, but I think it's interesting and it helps us understand a little bit about what's going on. In John 16 or in John 6 verse 15, we read that perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. 
after the feeding of the 5,000. The people were literally ready to make Jesus their king right there on the spot. And, and what better political leader could there be than one who could heal all of your sick and create seemingly endless amounts of food from nowhere? But this, of course, was not Jesus' intention, nor was it part of the plan. And reading between the lines, apparently we see that the people had a wrong focus, a wrong idea of what Jesus' kingdom was supposed to be about. He had gone away, and a little bit later in John, if you're following along, verse six, or chapter 6, verse 24, we read again, When the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus did what he often does. He read beyond their words and into their hearts. He could see their intentions like nobody else can. And he knew that they weren't seeking him because of his kingdom, but because of the food that he gave them. They had been given dinner the night before, and Jesus is essentially saying, you guys don't really want to follow me. You just want breakfast. Now, further indication is given of at least some of their intentions. We don't know about all of them, but Jesus starts at that point to give his, his teaching discourse on how he is the bread of life, about the, the difficulty of following him, about how it's only the spirit that gives life and that the flesh is of, of no use at all. And then we read toward the end of John 6, in verse number 66, that after hearing this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Again, at least for some of those who were there on that day. This is an example of the stony ground, the seed that took root, at least seemingly, but it was in shallow soil. And when hardship came or things weren't as they seemed, when Jesus began to explain to them the real depth of his kingdom, of his ministry, those little shoots were burned by the elements. And the faith that appeared to be there, it quickly faded. Well, then, of course, we have the disciples themselves. And as we read through the end of the Gospels, we know that at least 11 of them proved to be that final kind of soil, that good, fertile soil. And we see that in our passage today. And before we jump into Matthew 14, I want to read the end of John 6 as well. Jesus said to them, verse 67, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That was the response of the disciples. Would they go away also? They said, where else can we go? You have the words of life. Now, all that is kind of background and surrounding context to our passage today, in which we find that famous miracle of Jesus walking on the water, a miracle interestingly done just for the disciples, at least at that time, a miracle that would initially strike great fear into their hearts, but would turn to reveal to them the kind of reverence and awe that Jesus deserved and also revealed more about his care for them as his followers. So let's read in Matthew 14, beginning in verse 22. 
Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshiped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Lord, thank you for this passage. Thank you for this amazing account. Thank you for recording it for us through your servant, Matthew, and the other apostles. Thank you for for keeping it for us until this day that we can read it. And again, one that's perhaps so familiar to many of us, having heard it maybe even thousands of times since childhood. Yet, Lord, may it be unfamiliar enough today that it strikes curiosity in our hearts, uh, a will to dig in and to see and to take it as fresh and new. Pray that the Holy Spirit would apply it and by it renew our minds, encourage us, strengthen us, Help us, Lord, for as we read from Peter there in John 6, you alone have the words of life. And to you we come in this moment and ask for your help as we study and learn. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Two miracles. We'll we'll go to the end of the chapter as well later, and we'll see other miracles there in the last couple verses. But two miracles, a statement a failure and a confession show us who Jesus truly is and the attitude that we ought to take before him. And that's the idea is simple, but it's what the disciples did. Take courage and worship. Take courage and worship. Well, first we see a miracle. The section starts off with a particularly strong statement. If you look in verse 22, it says, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat. This is right after the feeding was over. And uh, he literally made them. The word is strong. It's he forced them to, to leave. And he didn't go with them. Now, why would he do that? Well, it's interesting because before the feeding, what were the disciples asking Jesus to do. They wanted him to dismiss the crowds, to make them leave. And then Jesus said, no, you feed them, keep them here. And I would have imagined that the idea was, let's feed them and keep them here because we're not done yet. There's there's more teaching to do. There's more healing to do. But now, immediately after dinner, 
He sent the disciples away forcibly. And then we read on and it says he dismissed the crowds also. Again, this leads me to believe that the miracle of the feeding was not so much for the sake of the people, but for the sake of the disciples. And when we couple that with John's comment that after the feeding, the people wanted to forcibly make Jesus king, we realize that, yeah, Jesus, he was done with the crowd at that point. And I think that's also the reason why he sends the disciples away so quickly. Imagine the scenario for for hundreds of years, Israel had been waiting to be delivered to have her redeemer king come onto the scene. And the Messiah as king was an image that people longed for and looked for, coupled with being ruled by Rome through puppet kings like Herod. And the times were rife then for a political uprising. And if the disciples had caught wind of the people's desire to make Jesus king on the basis of his feeding, then they may have been tempted to follow that logic as well. Is it time, they might ask? Will he rise to the throne now? Was this the miracle it took to show them who he truly is, that he is to be their king? And then if the disciples and the people had any hopes that it might be, in fact, time for the kingdom to be set up in a political sense, Jesus squashes that hope by sending them all away, by forcing his disciples to leave, and then making the crowds leave also without giving in to their desire to enthrone him. We would see that Jesus' kingdom would not be like this. It would not be the result of a, of a populist movement because of a free meal. No, Jesus' kingdom, as we've already seen, would be in the hearts of men and women, starting with his disciples. And we'll see more of that even in this passage as we go on. It will not be an uprising and or even a grand affair, but rather his kingdom will be in faith and moments of true confession. But we also see that Jesus sent them away because he needed to pray something that we read that he often did. And we aren't told what he's praying for here, but given the misunderstandings of the crowd and the concern for his disciples, we could imagine that he was probably praying for them like he did in John 17. We could imagine that he might've been praying for his message and the intention of his mission to remain pure. And we find him in verse 23, up on the mountain by himself, praying. And when evening came, he was there alone. He had been praying then, it seems, for hours. And we get a little time stamp as we find the disciples who had also been doing something for hours. They had been rowing, battling the sea and the wind. By the time Jesus and his disciples are reunited, it's it's the fourth watch of the night, which is in Jewish accounting, the three hours leading up to dawn, typically from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So it's very, very late at night or early in the morning, depending on your perspective, uh, whether six o'clock in the morning is still night to you or if that's early morning, that says a lot about your personality. Uh, we won't go into that though. But either way, we're told that at this point, the boat that Jesus made his disciples get into was a long way from the land. 
And uh, the actual wording is that it was many stadia in the sea. A stadia was a measurement about an eighth of a mile or equivalent to an eighth of a mile. And the Sea of Galilee was seven or eight miles wide at the most. So if they were many eighths of a mile into the sea, we can imagine that they're pretty much in the middle of the sea. We can safely surmise that they were fighting the wind because it was against them, perhaps even blown off course. But there's a little interesting note here because the disciples were being adamantly obedient to Jesus. He told them, he made them get into the boat and said, go to the other side. And that's what they were trying to do. They were trying to row into a headwind to the other side of the sea. Now, they knew the Sea of Galilee. They could have turned it around and, and, and docked their boat somewhere else for the evening until the storm subsided. But they were determined to row west into the wind as Jesus commanded them to. Well, verse 25 comes to us, as do many of Jesus' miracles, as sort of an understatement. In the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. Now, if I were writing a fictional drama, which included somebody walking on the sea, I would probably include things like, you know, his steps were like, light on the sea and there were like all the clouds around him were making this pathway and there was an illumination and he was sort of floating across the sea in midair. But no, that's not how the apostles record it. They simply record it as it happened. He came to them walking on the sea. No fanciful imagery, no fluff, no attempts to, to drum it up, no fanfare even, just a statement of sheer impossibility presented to us as actual fact. He came to them walking on the sea, not in the sea, not through the sea, but on the sea. Throughout the years, many have tried to dismiss this, the miraculous nature, at least of this, by saying that maybe Jesus was walking on a sandbar or a hidden reef but the middle of the Sea of Galilee is, is deep. There's no shallows there, and there certainly aren't any that go all the way out into the middle of it. And remember, many of his disciples were, were men who had spent their entire boyhoods and young adult lives working on this sea. They would have had no reason to be shocked and fearful and amazed if people typically walked on a sandbar across the Sea of Galilee, but that never happened. No, what they saw was a man walking on the sea. The image of someone walking on the water brings up a few Old Testament passages giving a picture of God as one who treads upon the water. Job 9, uh, verse 8, speaks of God as the one who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Uh, Psalm 77 Verse 19 records, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. Isaiah 43, verse 16, thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters. These recount, of course, the great 
story of the Israelites being led through the Red Sea. But even more than that, now we see that Jesus did not even have to part these waters to walk through them. He simply walked on them. And again, this wasn't a display for the crowds and the multitudes. It really was a miraculous but but practical response to the situation. The disciples were in the boat away from Jesus, so he came to them. We have seen Jesus before calming the storm while he, when he was asleep in the boat. And at that time, the disciples just had to wake him up. But this time, they were without him. Yet, he came to them. And he did it at such a time that nobody else could even see him. There was nothing boastful or showy about it. Uh, it was simply the Lord coming to the aid of his disciples after toiling all night in prayer. A miracle that truly is the understatement of all understatements. He came to them walking on the sea. But we read on then, verse 26, and we see a statement. Really two statements. One is the main one, and, and we see a, the disciples' attitude as well. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear, but immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. This is one of those passages where you just sort of have to place yourself in the scene. If you have any imagination at all, here are the disciples rowing for hours against a headwind, seemingly being blown off course and frustrated. Uh, now they're all men, at least the ones that we know of. And uh, they're not very old men, so it's possible that they had tempers about them. And uh, these might have been getting the best of them by this time. And it's almost dawn. They've been rowing all night. They're tired, maybe arguing, frustrated, perhaps a little scared already just because of the storm, at least some of them. And then out of the corner of the eye, one of them sees something. What is that? And then they look. It's a ghost, they cry. It's a phantom. Now, whether or not they actually or even generally believed in ghosts, that's not the point of this passage, but there were common beliefs in those days that those who died in the sea would go on to haunt the waters. And maybe, even if they didn't believe it, it came to their mind. It's sort of like when you're a little kid and you don't really believe in ghosts, but you've heard ghost stories. So when you hear something go bump in the night, it's at least a possibility in your mind for a split second. And uh, these men had been on the sea, many of them, their whole lives, and had never seen somebody walking on it. So this was a perfect opportunity. If ghosts are going to be real, I think this was the time. And if that was in their mind, they may have also taken this as a sign that they too might soon be ghosts if they were lost in this storm. But either way, they were, they were sure that they were seeing uh, a phantasm. That's the word that they used. It's where we get the word for phantom. And uh, why were they so sure about that? Well, they absolutely knew that what they were seeing, whether real or phantom, was defying all possibility. They knew that human beings did not float like this on water on their feet, and especially in a storm. This was some kind of phenomenon, an, an apparition, a ghost, a vision. It, surely it had to be something like that. And they were afraid. They were terrified, and they cried out 
in fear. Then, and here's the word immediately again, we've already seen it in verse 22, but immediately, verse 27, Jesus spoke to them, saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Not only does Jesus encourage them to take courage or take heart and to do not be afraid, he also gives them that central little statement, it is I. It is I. The disciples would have known his voice. Uh, They would have recognized his tone. Just him speaking would have eased their fears. He didn't even have to give them his name. But maybe he does give them his name. There's an interesting little note because the literal wording of that statement, it is I, is often translated in the New Testament as simply I am. I am. We see him use those those words in other places. Specifically in John, we see him use them seven very monumental times. I want to read these examples. You know them well. But it's the same phrase, the same wording. John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John 8, again, Jesus spoke to them, verse 12, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 10, verse 7, Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. John eleven twenty five. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. John 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. John 14, verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 15, verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. In all of these statements, and in the statement there, when Jesus was walking on the water, Jesus echoes the words that the Lord spoke to Moses when Moses asked, before the Exodus, when they ask who sent me, what do I say to them? And God said to Moses at Exodus 3.14, I am who I am, he said. Say to the people of Israel, I am sent me to you. Now, not only is there a connection in our English translation, but the scriptures that the people were reading when they were translated into Greek, the common language of Jesus' day, the exact wording there in Exodus 3 is what Jesus used in all of those examples in John and also here in Matthew. This was a true comfort for the disciples, not that the storm was not real or that uh, the rowing wasn't intense and laborious, Not in the moment that the moment itself wasn't fraught with concern, but that in the midst of the storm, the I am came to them. In the previous storm, Jesus calmed the storm when they cried out in fear. But in this case, the storm was not immediately calmed. Rather, the disciples were calmed by the presence of him who came to them. Isn't that just the way that Life is sometimes walking with the Lord. We do not receive a promissory note 
that all storms will be calmed when we cry out. But we do receive great and precious promises that the Lord is with us. He protects us. He helps us in that storm. And the Lord was with his disciples, not just their friend, but the Lord of the universe. They were beginning to learn even more about who he was as he came to them walking on the sea. We read on verse 28 and we see a failure and a, that may be a little bit uncharitable. Let's read the, a few verses and then we'll talk about it. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him saying to him, oh, you of little faith. Why did you doubt? Matthew is the only one who records this little snippet about Peter wanting to walk on the water to Jesus. And I've called this a failure because Jesus does, he does reprimand Peter a little bit softly. He says, you of little faith, why did you doubt? But I don't want us to get the idea that any of us would have been any different was reading one uh, author on this passage this week, and he made the point that we often are hard on Peter. He's sort of a, a loud mouth. Uh, he eventually would cut off a guy's ear. Um, he denied Jesus three times before his crucifixion during his trial. He often made bold and rash statements and was met on more than one occasion by, by a rebuke from Jesus. And he even at one point fell asleep in a prayer meeting. But haven't we all fallen asleep in prayer meeting before? <laughs> Peter was, as if, if nothing else, true to himself, which isn't always good, but we get a very real picture of a raw and a real man who Christ chose and redeemed. And here we see him as a man with utter courage and real faith, wanting to come out to the Lord on the sea. And he says, Lord, if it's you, uh, command me to come. Some people say maybe Peter shouldn't have asked for that, but I don't think so. I think Peter really in that moment was inspired with such courage and faith by seeing his Lord walk on the water that he believed that he could give him the power to do it as well. And he did. Jesus said, come. So Peter climbed over the gunwales of the boat and put a foot on the water. and He started walking to Jesus. And it's not that he lost all faith, but he was certainly distracted by the winds and the waves. Jesus immediately reached out his hand when Peter began to sink. And he said, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? The word for doubt is not to disbelieve altogether. It's, it's really to have a, a split mind, a double mind. Peter didn't lose faith altogether. He, he did lose his focus, though. He did have possibly one eye on Jesus and one eye on the sea, and the eye on the sea got the better of him. But notice that 
at the end of all, the, the locus or the, the, the object of Jesus or Peter's faith was still on Jesus. Because what did he cry out when he started sinking? He said, Lord, save me. And notice that Jesus didn't let him sink to teach him a lesson. He didn't let him gurgle in the water for a moment for him to feel bad about his failure. Jesus didn't even rebuke him angrily. He reached out his hand and he pulled him up and he said, oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? But Jesus said that to him only after he had rescued him. We too have moments of failure, partial failures, moments of of having a split mind, of a divided attention, of maybe one eye on the Lord, but the other eye on circumstances. And in those times where we have a divided mind, we do fail, but the Lord does not allow us to fail utterly. That's the story of Peter's whole life. Yes, Peter did fail. He eventually denied the Lord three times out of fear. But we're also told that Jesus was praying for Peter, that his faith would not fail. And it did not fail utterly. Peter would go on to be a leader in the church, a preacher of the gospel. He would see tens of thousands of people converted to follow Jesus Christ. He would write the epistles of 1 and 2 Peter to strengthen and encourage his brothers to follow the Lord. And if you are in the Lord, dear one, rest assured, you can have that confidence that little failures, moments of doubt, do not equate to utter failures. Peter would go on to write these words in 1 Peter 1 verses 3 through 5, where he would say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who listen, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter describes God's people as those who are being guarded by God's power until final salvation comes. That's the picture here. Peter did fail. He did take his eyes off the Lord for a moment. We do that constantly. But the I am Jesus Christ, the God-man himself, guarded his own. Even in his failure, he reached out and pulled him up. What a picture. What a savior. That leads us to verse 32 and verse 33. And in these verses, we see a confession. Really, uh, up until this point in Matthew, these are the pinnacle words of the disciples, what they speak here. When they got into the boat, so Peter and Jesus, they climbed up over the boat. They got in, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. Jesus and Peter walked to the boat and the wind stopped. The storm was over. Again, not before the lessons were learned and not before Jesus told them to take courage And when the disciples took stock of everything they had seen, they had but one true and honest response. They worshiped. And not only did they worship, they said, truly, 
You are God's son. Now, interestingly, in the last sort of storm and ship encounter we had with Jesus and the disciples, when Jesus calmed the storm, the disciples asked this question in Matthew 8. The men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this, that even the winds and sea obey him? But this time, after seeing Jesus walk literally miles across the water, they answered their own question. What manner of man is this? Truly, you are the son of God. Now, did they understand everything that that meant? Did they understand the fullness of Jesus' words when he said, I am, do not be afraid? I don't know if they did at that point. But by the time Matthew wrote this down, and by the time the other apostles wrote the gospel records as well, they understood who Jesus was. And that is the message of all the gospel records, proclaiming not what the disciples knew at the moment, but what they came to know, that the king is here, that Jesus Christ is the son of God. The crowds wanted to take Jesus and set up a kingdom by force because he fed them. But Jesus' kingdom was actually already ruling and thriving in the hearts of these few disciples who bowed down and worshiped him and who recognized him rightly as God's son. And something important to notice is that Jesus did not rebuke them for worshiping him. Uh, In scripture, we see that angels cannot accept worship and they, they tell the human being to get up, don't worship me. And a man, a mere man does not deserve worship, but Jesus Christ, the son of God, received their worship rightfully without a stitch of arrogance or pride. The disciples' understanding was growing. It was reaching a new pinnacle. They were learning. Not only was Jesus a great man, not only was he a great teacher, a rabbi, a master, but he is the son of God. Now, many are called the sons of God and that they are righteous and upright people, but Jesus alone is uniquely God's son. The apostle John has much to say about that. In John 1.18, just for one example, He says, no one has ever seen God, the only God, or the unique Son of God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. That is, after all was said and done, the apostles learned that Jesus Christ had come as the one true Son of God to reveal God the Father to them, to make a way for them to be saved, to be righteous, to be rescued. We see that in this passage in a little form where the Lord himself comes to rescue his people in a miraculous way. He calms our fears, helps us out of the deep waters, gives us strength and hope. And because of that, we are to worship him, to take heart, to take courage and worship him for who he truly is. The chapter closes with a little account. It's almost a side note before the whole sort of focus of Matthew changes in chapter 15. But just read in verse number 34 and following. When they had crossed over, they came to a land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and and brought to him all who were sick 
and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many touched it, were made well. Here is another understated but amazing account, an account with a multitude of healings, all coming by the way of the afflicted person just touching the fringe of Jesus' garment, probably the the tassels of his prayer uh, shawl. And this is included, it seems, by Matthew, not just as a side note, but it's included as if it's to bolster the confession and the worship that they had just given him. Is this man the son of God? Does he deserve worship? Well, if that's the question, then the answer is, who else can walk through a town and heal everyone who even just touches your coat? Does anyone else have this kind of power? Remember the people of Nazareth in chapter 13, they said, where does this man get his wisdom? Where does he get these mighty works? And it says they were offended by him and rejected him. But the disciples show us again that their hearts were fertile. They were beginning to see. They were not always courageously faithful. They had been consoled in their fears and their doubts. But when it came down to it, they confessed that this was the son of God. The one who could walk on the water. The one who could feed thousands of people with five loaves of bread and two fish. The one who could heal anybody who simply touched his garment is the one who came to his people. And the one who says to take courage, do not be afraid. The one who says when we glance away, oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? But says that only as he's rescuing us actively from our sin. Do you grasp the fullness of the I am, the God man coming to you, saving you, rescuing you, and even now through his word, comforting you? I pray that we would all have a renewed sense of his presence and his strength and that we would indeed take courage and worship him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much again for this marvelous account that shows us a little bit more about who you are. Lord, we, like your disciples, are learning. We are in a process of growth. We have moments of failure, moments of doubt. We have misunderstandings. Our minds are so limited and finite compared to not only just who you are, but even the things you've told us that in our weakness and our failure and our doubt, you've come to us and rescued us and you daily comfort us and call us back to focus on you. May we do that. May we take courage in following you and trusting you and may we worship you for who you truly are. Oh God, glory be to your name. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.